Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello out there. I hope everyone's enjoying October and the beauty of nature's annual slide into coma. At least that's what it feels like out here. I'd be happy in a cold world, to be honest. A cold world would be a humble one. What's this, a suicide note? (laughs) Nope, just dark topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna, and I think I've exhausted writing about how my personal experience parallels the forthcoming horror show for now. So I'll take this time to thank you all for tuning in as per usual and acknowledge all the positive feedback I've been receiving lately. I, as I always say, read it all, and if I could, I would respond with at least a smiley face or the praying hands of humble appreciation emoji. I'm a big fan of the emoji. The hieroglyph of our age, some say. I just want to assure you that if if you reach out, it, uh, I don't know, it touches me? Gross. I actually need a favor. If you enjoy Dark Topic, please rate it. This podcast visibility is more dependent upon the five-star rating system than I realized. No need to leave a message. Just give it a rating between one and five stars wherever you listen. Uh, For my good friends who have rated on Facebook, could you please quickly rate on your podcast app as well? I could use the boost for sure. Okay, my right pinky finger is tattooed with ink. I uh, I twist my hand into a claw and drag it as I take notes, and I've been busy trying to stockpile with baby Charlie about to bust out. So this will be interesting. Uh, the hospital is a little over an hour away. I keep envisioning the delivery happening out the side door of our minivan on a back road at 3 a.m. Sharp breaths, shrieks, and panicked, useless direction echoing across the recently harvested farmland. And finally, the anguished cries and wet gasps of a newborn baby. If that happens, I don't think I'll be able to resist holding Charlie Bucket up to the moon and renaming him Cropsy or something on the spot. It's a real possibility. Hashtag pray for Luna. All right. Strap on your seatbelt. The mustached, bespectacled giant who just opened his vehicle to us appears to be on a tight schedule, judging by the glance he gave his watch as he pulled up. Episode 4 of Season 2 features a true monster. You may know him as Edmund Kemper, or the co-ed killer, but to his friends, he's good old Big Ed. Don't mind his reach. The passenger door is finicky. It needs a slam.
Edmund Emil Kemper III was born in Burbank, California on December 18, 1948, to a mother who would forever find it to be aggravating. The fact that he arrived at a weight of 13 pounds may have had something to do with it. Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper was an overbearing and abrasive woman. Her husband, Edmund Emil Kemper II, E.E. for short, was a World War II vet who had spent some time post-war testing nukes in the Pacific Proving Grounds before settling his family in California. There he began a career as an electrician, a job that his wife considered to be menial, and let him know this at every opportunity. E.E. once said this about the mother of his three children, two girls and one future serial killer sandwiched in the middle. Quote, Suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. End quote. Young Edmund endured constant criticism from his mother for being weird and larger than every other child. By kindergarten, Ed was a foot taller than his classmates and suffered days full of teasing from his peers before heading home for even more from his mother and sisters. Ed at least had his father, who he loved and felt a kinship, not just as his son and namesake, but as a fellow misfit, enduring the wrath of Mother Daly. That is, until E.E. up and left when young Ed was nine years old and Clarnell moved the broken family to Helena, Montana, while E.E. started a new one in Van Nuys, California. In Montana, Ed's mother doubled down the poor treatment of her only son, as he now served as a reminder of her estranged husband and a failed marriage. A quote from Ed in later years here, regarding life post-divorce. Quote, I was a constant reminder of that failure. She took her violent hatred of my father out on me. My mother was sad, angry, hungry, and very sad. I hated her. End quote. It's around this time that Edmund began to vent the disturbances in his mind. At age 10, he buries the family cat alive, and once he's certain it's dead, digs it up, cuts off its head, and displays it on a spike in the yard. Some believe young Ed was striking out against his mother through this act, and others I'll soon get to, the cat being a representation of femininity. I personally think he would have done the same to the family dog had they owned one, but I appreciate the attempt at connecting dots here. Kemper is one of the rare serial killers who's deep enough to justify taking leaps in a bid to understand him. Clarnell begins to see the danger in her son and decides it might be best if she lock him in the basement at night. She's fearful that he may harm her or his sisters as they sleep. Ed spent many nights at a young age, sleeping on a cot in the cold basement. A dim single bulb on a pull string is only weapon to fend off the phantoms that swirl about the minds of all children. The sound of rats scurrying about the floor and through the walls kept him up most nights, and he lay shivering in fear, warmed only by the murderous thoughts he already had begun harboring towards his now alcohol-fueled and erratic mother. Ed's unusual and deviant behavior started early. He became fascinated by his grade two teacher, often stealing away from his home at dusk, sometimes with his father's bayonet, to spy on the woman through her windows. Peeping is usually the trait of perverts, but young Ed was already beyond this. He imagined what it would be like to storm the house and murder his teacher, then have his way with her body. Ed was an awkward boy, and came to the conclusion before the age of ten that the only way he'd feel comfortable around a female as if they were dead. He openly admitted as much. When his sisters teased Ed about his obvious infatuation with the teacher, telling him to go ahead and kiss her if he loved her so much, Ed matter-of-factly stated that it would be impossible, as in order to make it happen, he'd have to kill her first. Edmund had no friends, so he spent much of his free time playing with his sisters. 
He'd create games like most kids, but the tone was always dark and morbid. Ed would instruct the girls to tie him to a chair, and then, once the clock struck twelve, flick on the light to mimic the switch being thrown for the electric chair he pretended to be secured to. Another favorite game was Gas Chamber, where he'd be locked in a room and wait nervously for his sister to toss the pellets under the door. In both games, Ed would enthusiastically mimic whichever death he imagined himself to be experiencing. His oldest sister enjoyed messing with her younger siblings, as most eldest children do, but things were always a little off when it came to the Kempers. Edmund nearly died twice as the result of her pranks, once being shoved in front of a train which narrowly missed him, and another time falling into the deep end of a pool after yet another push from Big Sis, nearly drowning before rescue as he couldn't swim. Eddie kills another family cat when he's 13 years old, the reason being that he felt it was paying more attention to his younger sister than he. Ed often was punished for destroying his sister's dolls. He had a fascination with dismembering them, something that gave him a sense of power and control. This cat was taken apart as well, and Mother soon found pieces of it hidden in her disturbed boy's closet. These kind of incidents did nothing to help his cause. By the time Ed Kemper was 14, he had grown to 6 feet 4 inches and constantly was being called a weirdo by everyone he interacted with, especially his mother, who seemed to enjoy tormenting her son. Those who would later treat Ed Kemper hypothesized that his mother, Clarnell, displayed many of the traits of borderline personality disorder, a serious mental affliction that exhibits an intense episodes of anger, depression, and anxiety that may last for a few hours or a few days. Alcohol certainly doesn't temper this condition, and Clarnell was sauced regularly at this time. Soon the verbal abuse became too much for Ed, and he ran away from home at age 14. He tracked down his father in California, who, as I mentioned earlier, had immediately started a new life upon shedding his previous. E.E. E. let Ed stay for about a month before it became obvious he wasn't welcome. Ed was jealous of his stepmother and stepbrother, and soon he was sent off to live on his grandparents' 17-acre ranch in the mountains of North Fork, California. Of this rejection, Ed later said, Quote, He didn't want me around because I upset his second wife. My presence gave her migraine headaches. End quote. Ed's grandma was a replica of his own mother, just older and a little less mean, but domineering and irritable all the same. Ed's grandfather, the original model assigned the Edmund Emil Kemper name, worked for the highway department but was showing signs of senility, so spent much of his time gaping blankly into his wife's angry, berating face. For Christmas, he gave his grandson a rifle, which was meant to be used to rid the ranch of troublesome wildlife like rabbits, gophers, and squirrels. By August of 1964, young Ed, now 15 years old, had decided to use it to get rid of what he perceived to be the largest pest on the ranch. Grandma Kemper had just settled back into writing one of her many short stories of adventure she regularly submitted to Boys Life magazine for publication when her enormous bespectacled grandson re-entered the kitchen following their recent argument, armed with his rifle. She barely acknowledged him, but lectured that he abstained from killing any of her feathered friends. Ed ignored this and responded by shooting the old bird in the back of the head, cutting her off mid-oration. He then stabbed her twice in the back to confirm death, later claiming to have done this to ensure she wasn't suffering. He then dragged her body into a bedroom and waited for his grandfather to return from the grocery. Soon enough, Edmund the first returns and his now officially unstable grandson exits the house, rifle in hand. Grandpa smiles and gives the boy a wave before reaching into the bed of his pickup to retrieve the bags. As he does so, Ed strides up behind his grandfather, 
and ends the old man's life with a shot to the back of the head. He then drags the body into the house and stuffs it in a closet. Kemper would later explain that he killed his grandfather to spare him the knowledge that his wife had been murdered by his grandson. Young Ed Kemper is in a sorry state. He's confused, scared, and at that moment willing to kill anyone should they come upon the house to see what the gunfire was about. But then he remembers he's on a ranch in the mountains. Kemper will later say that had he committed this heinous crime in the city, where someone may have been alerted to his act, he would have gone on a rampage. Here's a direct quote from Kemper, looking back on his state of mind immediately following the murder of his grandparents. Quote, I sensed everybody in the world coming to get me. I knew anybody that came up there that gave me a fishy eye or a quizzical look, I would have blown their brains out. If I had been in the city, I would have been a mass murderer at 15. End quote. Fifteen-year-old Ed Kemper, despite all of his hatred towards his mother, picks up the phone and contacts her for counsel. She tells him to call the police, and he does so. When authorities arrive, Ed is sitting on the front porch. He's arrested without incident. In custody, he's asked plainly, Why? To which Kemper infamously responds, quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma. End quote. Edmund goes through a psychological evaluation where psychiatrists and Kemper himself, who takes an active role in trying to understand his own psyche, come to the shaky reasoning that Edmund killed his grandparents in a heinous attempt to alleviate the deep feelings of furious, anguished betrayal he harbored regarding his mother and father. The relationship he had with his parents was a near replica to the one he had been forming with his grandparents, and when that relationship began to fail as well, Edmund snapped. Kemper is misdiagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic and is placed in the criminally insane unit of Atascadero State Hospital. This unit held around 1,600 rapists and murderers who were treated by a staff of 10 doctors. Edmund stood out not only because of his size but because of his intellect and young age, not to mention the shocking crime he committed. Kemper's IQ was tested as being 136 on entry. A later test scored him at 145. I know I get hung up on... IQ scores, so forgive me if I've gone over this already, but an average IQ falls between a score of 85 to 115. Less than a quarter of 1% of human beings have IQs as high as Kemper's. Pair this superior capacity for learning with his enormous size and the homicidal sociopathic tendencies he clearly possessed, and it becomes clear that we have a real fucking problem here in Big Ed Kemper. Needless to say, Kemper becomes a patient of much interest for doctors and staff, and the consensus soon is a unanimous that Big Ed is neither paranoid nor schizophrenic. One psychiatrist is documented as stating that Kemper showed, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking, end quote. Kemper was well-behaved, well-mannered, and well-spoken. In fact, Big Ed had likely never felt so in place as he did in the criminally insane unit. He walked the halls freely as an assistant to psychiatrists who were fascinated by the captivating young Kemper. Edmund had access to the psychological tests that were administered to his fellow criminally insane and easily memorized the answers, honing his ability to appear as normal. He picked the brains of serial rapists and murderers who gladly shared their experiences along with tips and tricks of the trade, the main one being to always put your victim at ease and never allow them to live once you've unmasked. Kemper was soon re-diagnosed with personality trait disturbance, the type being passive-aggressive personality disorder. The dsm 4 describes this mental disorder as being a, quote, intense conflict between dependence on others and the desire for self-assertion. 
I know this type well. I've been this type. I think we all have. And on one occasion, I had the privilege of seeing a form of it laid bare. It appears I do have a personal story after all. Will it never end, Luna? Or uh, (laughs) are you the most interesting man in the world? I'm the most interesting person I know. I think we all are to ourselves. I just happen to be so self-obsessed that I created a podcast to commemorate my little stories, apparently. (laughs) Maybe this is therapy, as some of you have hypothesized. I'm running out. Don't worry. My first legitimate job was as a short-order cook at KFC. The guy assigned to train me had been there about a year. He was a large redhead with freckles. You might mutter to yourself, uh, quote, a ginger, but I don't use that term. In this brave new world of political correctness and sensitivity, I really feel like redheads have served as a release valve for all that pent-up chain-yanking. My son has a tinge of ginge, as they say, and my fiance's way close. Redheads are, you know, they're people too. You bastards. Can you imagine being told that you have no soul as a joke? Because of the way you look? No soul. Well, what I'm about to share isn't going to help the plight of redheads, but I'll tell it anyways, because it's sad and horrifying and relevant. Maybe even hilarious, depending on uh, who you are. (laughs) Massively ironic as well, since this guy's nickname was Big Red. Red was slow. He walked slow. He thought slow. He talked slow. Red was huge, like Kemper, 6'3 at least and weighed no less than 400 pounds. His tight, flat, freckled face looked as though he was smushing it against glass when he spoke at you. It became clear pretty quick that first morning that Big Red was relishing the responsibility of being a trainer. Unfortunately for me, Big Red had a sub-85 IQ for sure. He took about 15 minutes to explain to me how to wash dishes. The location of the light switches were pointed out. He spent extra time drilling it into my head how important it was to knot the garbage bags as they were too big and would fold in under the relentless garbage from customers eventually, resulting in a huge mess for Red, who somehow always ended up being the one to clean the bins. Finally, the doors were unlocked and customers soon arrived. Red behaved as though we were about to storm the beaches of Normandy as he set me up to be his prep man. The lunch rush rolled in and I began the task of battering the chicken, which I performed under Red's dead eyes and drone of instruction as he absently dumped baskets of it into the pressure cookers. After about an hour of this, Red announced that he would show me how to work the pressure cookers. He had been dunking half racks of chicken this whole time, but he decided to get us ahead a bit for training purposes and do a full rack, which he warned me needed to be done a little slower as the oil would overflow if the chicken were dunked in too quick. He was in his glory this day. I'm pretty sure this was Big Red's first time training, his first time giving direction, and I was humoring him to a large degree. Red proudly lifted the full rack with a hook, and as he repeated to me how important it was not to drop a full cage into the fryer, he dropped the cage into the fryer. Red casually went to slam and lock the lid, but it bounced back up as he did, a geyser of hot oil rejecting its intention. Red didn't panic. He so badly wanted to appear competent that, rather than acknowledge his mistake, he calmly stuck his hands into the fryer and lifted the cage out. I could still see him carefully setting down the cage as the oil cooked the skin from his arms. Big Red started breathing heavily, then let out a T-whistle-esque scream. The manager ran back and began swearing in Hindi as he took in his oversized league cook's disastrous predicament. For me, it's a moment frozen in time. Red's now wild eyes holding his arms stiffly in front of him as though he were 
covered in bees rather than searing hot oil. I just stood there, bewildered, maybe wondering if it was a prank, but more likely I was in shock. Red was rushed to his sink, then an ambulance was called. The fryer got shut off, and I continued my shift under the manager's eye. Turned out it was pretty easy, as long as you kept your arms out of the fryers. Who fucking knows of that story, docked? Insecure inside, projecting confidence outwardly. Disaster ensuing when the two sides face each other, right? Either way, that's a dark topic right there. Edmund Kemper, between the ages of 15 and 21, received a pseudo-education in criminal psychology from the fellow criminally insane he rubbed shoulders with during this time. He's released with a better understanding of what he is and what he's capable of on December 18, 1969, his 21st birthday. The treatment he received did much to quell his insecure side, which in the end only really succeeded in creating a more potent homicidal sociopath. The 60s are two weeks from death when Ed, much to the chagrin of his psychiatrist, decides to move in with his mother who has returned to California and now works as an administrative assistant at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Clarnell is sympathetic to her now-grown son and maybe wants to start fresh, but she hasn't changed much and alcohol is still her companion. Before long, the belittling ramps up again and she knows just the right buttons to push. In a later interview... Ed recalled her on one occasion saying something like, quote, For seven years I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. End quote. Ed had convinced the system that he was of no threat to himself or society by shining during the standard assessments and saying what he knew those asking were hoping to hear. But the one test they couldn't run began to immediately wear down all the progress Kemper had seemed to make while incarcerated. The test of his mother's wilting scrutiny and judgment. As a requirement of his parole, Ed heads back to school, hoping to become a highway patrolman, but fortunately for everyone living in California at the time, Ed is too tall and doesn't qualify. He makes friends with many local officers through this process, however, and begins hanging around a known cop bar named the Jury Room. Ed is seen as a big, harmless, gentle giant who just missed making the force due to technicality, and now is getting his fix by being around enforcement officers. The cop culture adopts Kemper, even going so far as to fit him with the Big Ed moniker. Kemper is like an alien to those his own age. He's missed the culture shift of the 60s. His country's at the tail end of the Vietnam War, and the flower power movement still steadily beats its drum in the Santa Cruz area. The kids seem to be speaking a different language than he. Ed attempts to understand this new society by picking up every hitchhiker he sees, of which there are many, and piecing together what he can from the conversations he has. Of this, Kemper later said, quote, I traveled a lot because I'd been locked up for five and a half years, so I was driving around. The driving around was a way to demonstrate that freedom. It was a way to get the cobwebs out of me. End quote. He prefers to pick up the pretty girls he sees around the university. 
His mother, who laughs in his face when he mentions these run-ins, saying an ogre like him stands zero chance of dating such girls, has given him a university staff parking sticker that he slaps on his yellow two-door 69 Ford Galaxy. This sticker gives him access to the campus, of which he drives around frequently, trolling for girls. As time goes on, Kemper has more than one experience of a young girl rejecting his offer for a ride. The sticker, he realizes, sometimes is enough to get them in, but now he begins to work on his own approach, making a game of putting people at ease. Soon enough, Kemper is confident that he can convince anyone to get in with him. He uses little tricks such as checking his watch as he pulls up to feign hesitance at stopping at all. This trick, he finds, is nearly fail-safe. It's all innocent fun until dark thoughts begin creeping into Edmund's mind during these rides. He begins fantasizing about driving a girl, or girls, as was the case quite often, out into the woods to have his way with them. Before long, Ed is carrying a gun under his seat, and he feels the urge to pull it on his passengers, getting stronger and stronger, more so after an argument with Mother, of which there were plenty. Here, I'll let Big Ed explain this slippery slope he found himself struggling upon. First, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We'd go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out, and I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. Uh, It was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that, psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. It was going to happen. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. 
Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zippix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zippixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zippix nicotine toothpicks. After what Ed estimates to be at least 150 hitchhikers transported without incident, he finally realizes that he is powerless to the urges. He wants a relationship, but simply doesn't have the tools to make it happen. No pun intended. Big Ed had a, a little Ted, apparently. Is, uh, is that even a... I'm sure someone has named their dink uh, Ted before. Little Ted. Kemper decides that he'll take what Mother says he'll never have, and when he does... The lessons from his criminally insane brethren won't be forgotten. He'll leave no witnesses. On May 7th of 1972, Kemper checks his watch as he pulls over for two young females. What he'll come to know is, quote, little zapples are bursting through him as he looks out at two petite 18-year-olds who say they're headed to a party. The blonde one, Anita Lucessa, hops in immediately, taking the front seat. The dark-haired girl, Mary Ann Pesk, is a little more wary She's hitchhiked across Europe already at her young age, and something about the hulking, awkward man who looks innocently at her through his buddy Holly glasses seems off. Kemper pulls the seat up for her and looks her dead in the eyes, pushing a goofy look on his face, a look of innocence that fools Marianne. She slides into the back of the two-door coupe. Kemper reaches his long arm across his friendly new passenger and closes the door again, and while doing so, slips a tube of chapstick under the handle, jamming it somehow and making it difficult for escape. As they drive, Kemper is unnerved by Marianne's relentless stare into his rear view. He's overcome with sexual arousal. The sternness of the girl in the back with her shining black hair is driving him wild for some reason, likely because she's reminiscent of his own mother, a mother who was talking about exactly this type of girl being out of his league. Kemper distracts the girls with conversation as he drives them to a desolate location, far from where they'd requested to go. When they begin to look around, he pulls the weapon and stops the vehicle, submitting at last to his fantastic passion. Mary Ann is trapped in the back of the two-door. Anita is tied up at gunpoint. Then she's hauled out of the yellow Ford and placed in the trunk. Kemper has played over this fantasy countless times in his mind, but the real thing is tripping him up. When he returns to the vehicle after putting Anita Lucessa in the trunk, he asks Marianne to remove her clothes, then crawls in the back and attempts to rape her. Kemper has had zero sexual experience 
and is mortified to find that he can't complete the foul act due to technical difficulties. This enrages him. And as Marianne smarts off to him, as he says, he pulls a knife and begins stabbing her. Of this he later said, quote, I stabbed her, and she didn't fall dead. They're supposed to fall dead. I've seen it all in the movies. It doesn't work that way. When you stab someone, they leap to death. It wasn't working with a damn. I stabbed her all over. End quote. Kemper finally gets behind the screaming girl and slices her throat. Of this, he'd later comment that he learned the meaning of ear to ear this day. The murder has left Ed numb, but he knows he needs to take care of the girl in the trunk. No witnesses. He pops the trunk and Anita Lucesa takes in the blood-spattered giant. Kemper tries to calm her, claiming that her friend got smart, so he had to hit her, breaking her nose as a result. Acting concerned, he tells the girl to exit the trunk to come help her friend. Anita begins to exit, and Kemper plunges the knife into the helpless girl. Of this he later said, quote, When I attacked her, at first she didn't know what was happening. End quote. Before Anita dies, she's likely all too aware of her predicament. Kemper stabs until he's certain it's over. Two pretty, sweet, bright young girls now lay snuffed out in Kemper's vehicle. He slams the trunk closed, then starches. He can't find his keys, and believes he has just locked them in the trunk. His instinct is to run, and he makes a move to do so, but stumbles over the gun that's fallen from his pocket at some point. Kemper gathers himself. He realizes that he's panicking, and forces his hand to systematically check all of his pockets, soon recovering them from a rear one, a spot he can't recall ever having placed them before. Marveling at his own ineptitude, he goes into autopilot, removing Marianne from the back seat and placing her in the trunk as well. He heads back to an apartment he's now renting, having recently acquired work with the highway department. Along the way, Kemper is actually pulled over for a broken taillight and gets off with a warning. Once home, he waits until dark, then retrieves the bodies from his vehicle. He studies them, then takes to the task of dismembering each in his bathtub. As he goes about his work, he finally begins to feel himself swell and is forced to break and masturbate over the carnage. He decapitates the bodies and uses the heads to pleasure himself. This, he knew, was always the end game. Kemper had always been fixated on the fantasy of having a dead girl all to himself. And now he had two. He was in heaven. Kemper would later share that his fixation with decapitation likely began when his father cut the heads off two chickens one day and his mother suggested that they should feed them to young Edmund. He recalled driving around the neighborhood on his bike, terrified that he'd have to do so. In another incident, Kemper walked into a music store where a magician was performing. He was doing a guillotine-style magic trick and asked one of the young, pretty 16-year-old girl to come up to volunteer. When she did, the magician also asked her friend to come up and hold her hands out to catch the young girl's head when he chopped it off. These two incidents he credits as being the seeds that grew into horrific realities later on. Probably a little bit more to it than that, but something there. Kemper scatters the body parts in different wooded locations the next day. No trace of Anita Lachesa is ever discovered. Kemper buries Marianne's torso and scatters the rest of her parts about. A word from Ed on this, quote, Sometime afterward I visited there to be near her, because I loved her and wanted her. End quote. 
Ed keeps the heads in a bag and regularly pulls them out to pleasure himself with. When they finally become unusable, he dumps them in a ravine. Marianne's skull is eventually discovered by hikers, and a match with dental records finally brings to end her family's desperate search. Like I said, unfortunately, Anita Lachesa is never recovered. Kemper takes the summer to work and lay low, but by September 14th of 1972, he's ready for a repeat performance. Aiko Ku, a 15-year-old Korean ballet student, had recently been selected to perform at the St. Louis World Trade Fair and had spent the previous evening bargaining with her protective mother over whether she'd be allowed to go. The 15-year-old had taken up hitchhiking recently, much to her mother's disapproval. The next day she had a class, but when the bus didn't arrive as scheduled, she opted to stick out her thumb. Soon enough, a car pulled over. A yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy, commandeered by a giant. Kemper chats up his young passenger, but unlike his first victims, Ku realizes that they are headed in the opposite direction of their agreement and into a remote area. She begins to panic, and Ed pulls the gun in an attempt to freeze the girl. This only makes matters worse, so he puts the gun away, which works to bring her down. Another one of Kemper's many tricks. He raises the stakes, then tempers them. A masterful manipulation play. When he finds a suitable, secluded spot, Ed pulls over and parks. He then exits for reasons unclear and manages to lock himself out. He's shocked by his incompetence, but stays calm. Without betraying his alarm, Ed casually asks the girl to let him back in. Much to his relief, Ku crawls over, past his keys, and unlocks the door. This is a mind-blowing detail, but not all that surprising. The girl was young and terrified. She likely had only one goal, and that was to keep the massive man with the gun calm. And she succeeds. Ed Kemper steadily retrieves a roll of tape and rips off a strip, then places it over the girl's mouth. He then calmly lifts his massive hand and pinches her nostrils. Aiko Ku struggles to no avail. Once unconscious, Kemper rapes, then chokes the girl to death. He carries the tiny body to the trunk, then heads to the bar for a celebratory drink. After a couple of beers, Big Ed returns to his car and boldly opens the trunk. Hands on hips, he, quote, admires the catch like a fisherman, Kemper returns to his apartment where he engages in disgusting necrophilic acts with the body. He then dismembers it and scatters the parts, keeping the head for the same reason he kept the previous two. Kemper had this to say when reminiscing upon the dismemberment of the young girl. I think it more than confirms Kemper's sociopathy, as if that needed a stamp by this point. Quote, I remember it was very exciting. There was actually a sexual thrill. It was kind of an exalted triumph type thing, like taking the head of a deer or an elk or something would be to a hunter. I was the hunter, and they were the victims. End quote. Kemper attended two psychiatric follow-up evaluations while a head and hand sat in the trunk of his car. These meetings concluded with a decision to seal Edmund's juvenile records. One doctor wrote that Kemper, quote, has made an excellent response to the years of treatment. I can see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be a danger to himself or any other member of society. End quote. Ed returned to his vehicle in a festive mood. He was a free man again. To celebrate, he retrieved the bag from his trunk and 
used the head on himself as he traveled to the jury room for drinks with his cop buddies. It actually might be a stretch to call them buddies. Kemper described himself more as a friendly nuisance. Either way, around for the boys. On Big Ed. Ed had his moments where he felt he should put a stop to the whole thing. Sometimes he'd sit in his car and get drunk near the police station, toying with the idea of turning himself in. He knew he was just trying to hurt his mother with this whole mess, and what better way to do that than to admit to being the co-ed killer? A few words from Ed here on how he was playing a mental game of retribution by killing young women he knew his mother would have considered to be too good for him. Quote, I was destroying icons. I was hurting her without her even knowing it. End quote. Kemper decides he's not ready to be locked up again and eventually ended up burying the head in his mother's garden once it became unusable. He was sure to place it so it faced the house, later joking that his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Shortly after New Year's, January 7th, 1973, the year the devil left the door open, an 18-year-old student named Cindy Shaw disappears while hitching. We now know that Kemper picked the girl up, drove her to the woods, and shot her dead. As was now his routine, he placed the body in the trunk, then returned to his mother's house where he was unhappily living again. Kemper manages to sneak his prize to his bedroom where he places it in the closet for safekeeping and eventually drifts off to sleep. The next morning, after Mother leaves for work, Ed does his thing. He even takes the time to remove the bullets from the body while dismantling it in the tub. It turned out that Sidney Shaw was a babysitter for one of Ed's detective friends, Detective Connor. Connor would later comment on the fact that Kemper buried Cindy's head outside of his window so he could be close to it. Quote, He had an attachment to her. It was unbelievable. But Ed, excuse the phrase, seemed like a gentle giant. He was a likable kind of guy. That he could be responsible for something like this. End quote. Cynthia Shaw's remains, unlike the others, begin to turn up immediately arms by the roadside, a pelvis on the beach, a torso bobbing in a lagoon. Kemper was getting comfortable, or maybe he was marking his territory. There were two other active serial killers in the area at the time, one in particular named Herbert Mullins, who had begun indiscriminately murdering people in an attempt to appease the earthquake gods. Kemper would later confront Mullins about his glory stealing. The two were locked up together for a spell once this was finally over. Big Ed tortured the much smaller killer, practicing behavior modification on Mullins, dumping water on him when he got annoying, or giving him peanuts when he behaved appropriately. Bizarre stuff. I failed to mention that Kemper was actually engaged to be married through all this. He wanted to live a regular life, but whatever it was in his mind wouldn't allow it. Kemper's cool-down time was shrinking. On February 25th, 1973, after an argument with Mother, Ed hopped in his car and mentally vowed to kill the next pretty girl he crossed. He soon found one in 22-year-old Rosalind Thorpe. Thorpe had narrowly missed the bus after staying late studying at the university library. Her arms were full of books, and it was beginning to drizzle when Kemper pulled up and offered her a lift. She reluctantly accepted, even though by this point everyone knew there was at least one killer on the loose. Santa Cruz was being dubbed the murder capital of the world, 
and patrol cars were sweeping the streets of female hitchhikers when they spotted them. Big Ed behaved as though he were concerned for the girl's safety as well, and was convincing enough to nab two on this occasion. As he pulled away with his first catch, another girl, 21-year-old Allison Liu, appeared on the side of the road. She too had missed the bus, and was easily convinced to get into the yellow Ford as the presence of Rosalind dropped her defenses. Ed remarked on the beautiful view ahead as he drove. Rosalind took it in politely as Kemper pulled his gun and shot her point blank, killing the girl. In the back, Allison was hysterical. Kemper calmly aimed the gun and unloaded. Of this, he later shared, apologies for the abundance of quotes, Kemper shared a lot, quote, I had to fire through her hands. She was moving around and I missed twice. Another unbelievable scene unfolds as Kemper is forced to pass through a campus security checkpoint. He had full access to the school grounds with a staff parking sticker, as I've said. A guard asks Ed what's up with the slump girls he has with them. Allison Liu is allegedly still alive and moaning in the back of this moment. Kemper calmly explains that he's got a couple of drunk girls and he's just getting them home. The guard nods in wry understanding and waves the killer through, unknowingly saving his own life in the process. It's dark when Ed pulls into his mother's driveway. He can see that she's still up, so he pulls out a knife and beheads the dead girls right there. A neighbor's bay window is angled within view of the butchering. Had anyone looked out of it, they would have witnessed Big Ed casually decapitating a young woman outside of his vehicle. Kemper is existing on some level of reality that only monsters from horror magazines can relate to. He hides the bodies in the trunk, then smuggles the heads inside for his sick pleasure. They're much easier to sneak past Mother without the bodies attached. April 20th, 1973. A good Friday, though not literally. Edmund Kemper had finally come to the conclusion that he was symbolically killing his mother over and over again by taking these young girls. So, is there a fucking animal outside? Come on, man. The fuck is that? So why not commit his ultimate fantasy murder and spare the rest? That evening, he waited for Clarnell to return from a party. When she did, he let her be until she got into bed, then entered to see if Mother would say something to change his mind about killing her. Her response upon seeing Ed was to look over her book in annoyance and spit her final words. Quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. End quote. It was decided. Ed exclaimed, Nope, good night, before exiting the room. Once Clarnell fell asleep, Ed entered with a claw hammer and bludgeoned his mother to death. He then cut her throat to be sure, and once death was obvious, he decapitated her. It's going to be hard to shock you with what came next, but here goes nothing. Ed rapes his mother's dead face, then props it on his shelf and throws darts into it, screaming out all the hatred he has been harboring for since he was a child as he does so. This lasts over an hour. He concludes what must have been an epic rant by smashing the disembodied head's face in. Next, Ed removes his mother's tongue and larynx, then feeds them into the garbage disposal. The disposal can't handle the task, and tissue flies back in Ed's face. Of this he later quipped, quote, That seemed appropriate, 
as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over the years. End quote. Edmund heads back to the bedroom where he rapes his mother's headless corpse. Satisfied, he shoves the body into a closet and heads out to the jury room for a drink and to enjoy the constant speculation over who could be responsible for all the dead and missing ladies. Probably a real sicko, Big Ed was later recalled to have chimed in. When Ed eventually returns home, he realizes that he has at least one more in him, so he calls up his mother's good friend, 59-year-old Sarah Hallett, and invites her over for dinner and a movie, to which the surprised older woman gladly accepts and heads straight over. When she arrives, Kemper wastes no time. He attacks and strangles the poor woman to death. Ed then, of course, decapitates the body and has his way with everything. He's now tired, so he drags Miss Hallett's headless corpse into bed with him and soon falls asleep with it in his arms. After a good night's rest, Ed stuffs his body pillow into the closet, then tidies up a bit. He then sits down to write this note that he leaves for authorities to find. Quote, Approximately 5.15 a.m., Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. End quote. Kemper then flees, knowing that his run is finally over. He uses Miss Hallett's car to get to Colorado, where he decides, after having not heard any news on the radio, to call it in himself. The first call he makes isn't taken seriously. The dispatcher believes it to be a prank and hangs up. Ed calls back and requests to speak to an officer he knows personally. This time his message hits home, as he shares details that only the killer of the six missing and or dead students in the Santa Cruz area would know. Kemper waits patiently to be picked up, and on the ride back to California, where they make at least two stops to rest, and the now infamous co-ed killer's enormous frame is led into county jails to spend the night doing so. Kemper shares why he turned himself in for the second time in his life. Quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, and at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. End quote. On May 7, 1973, Edmund Emil Kemper III is indicted for eight counts of first-degree murder. He pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. While awaiting trial, he twice gets a hold of a reporter's pen and attempts to kill himself with it. These attempts are only for show, however, a ploy to bolster his insanity defense. Three psychiatrists find Kemper to be sane. A fourth, Dr. Joel Fort, deems Ed to be psychotic after injecting the killer with, quote, truth serum and allegedly discovering that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, took some leg meat, and made a casserole with it, apparently. Despite Edmund's best efforts to appear insane, even taking the stand and admitting to the murders, saying that he wanted the girls to himself, on November 8, 1973, a six-man, six-woman jury take just five hours to come back with a verdict of guilty on all counts. When Kemper's asked by the judge what he thinks his punishment should be, Ed coolly replies that, death by torture. Sounds about right. A moratorium had been placed on capital punishment at the time, so instead... Kemper received eight life sentences. He's currently still serving his time at the California Medical Facility 
a medium security prison, where his old friend Charles Manson has spent some time as well. Kemper lives amongst the general population and has stated that he's happy in prison, where he has recorded over 5,000 hours of book narration for the blind. Edmund Kemper has declined to attend his last 10 parole hearings, including one scheduled for this year. Okay. I think that's the best I can do. On Ed Kemper, I'll let, uh, I'll let him walk you out. To be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it. Walking up to my apartment past a happy young couple coming down the stairs who nodded and smiled at me as they went by. Good evening. And they're going out on a date where I'd love to be going. And I'm aware of both of these realities and the, dis- the distance between those two is so dramatic, so amazing, so violent that that really, I could feel the wheels squeaking inside. That was really pulling on it. And I imagine at that point some people break. But I didn't literally go insane. I didn't get lost. Big Ed Kemper. I mean, I'd never say I had a favorite serial killer. (sighs) Apparently I'd allude to it. All right. Thank you for coming. Contact me on Twitter at dark underscore topic. Instagram, dark underscore top picks. Facebook or email darktopicpod at gmail.com. I'd, uh... Somebody fucking shooting off in a rocket out there. I I apologize for all the noise in the background, too. I don't know if you could hear it as well as I could, but uh, there's a real fucking... uh, People are really testing their tools out today. Or testing out how big of a tool they can be driving their fucking vehicles around town. Motor scooting. Bend the blinds and say it with me if you like. Eyes cocked. Doors locked. Stay parents. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.